Welcome to episode two of Shadows of the Empire. The wheels come off. Summer 1940. The German invasion of the West in May 1940 completely upended Britain's plans for the Second World War. France, its major continental ally, was expected to fight alongside it on the continent, much like in the First World War. Both countries would stop Germany in its tracks, both navies would blockade the Axis, and both would gear up their empires for a war of attrition that would grind down Nazi Germany to a bloody stump. Of course, now we know this didn't happen. France was defeated within six weeks, and while the evacuation from Dunkirk was celebrated as a gift of divine providence, Britain was entering its most lonely and dire stretch of the Second World War. It would fight the Axis as the lone combatant till Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941. The United States wouldn't enter the war till Pearl Harbor in December 1941. And back in the summer of 1940, Britain would have to make difficult decisions to stay in the war because at that moment, it was fighting alone. Britain's home army, the BEF, returned without much of its heavy equipment. Often men returned with barely their shirts on their back. While the army remained defiant, it now had few tanks, guns, trucks, or heavy equipment. Much of it was abandoned to the Germans in Belgium and France. The RAF would spend the summer and fall of 1940 locking horns with the Luftwaffe and a newly entered fascist Italy, fighting to keep control of the skies over the home islands. The Navy now had to focus on repelling any potential German invasion while defending the North Atlantic convoys against German U-boats, all the while trying to keep open the sea lanes through the Mediterranean to India and the Far East. With all these competing priorities at once, it meant that every imperial command in the empire would have to pay a price as Britain prioritized the survival of the home islands. With Italy now an Axis partner, Britain now faced a very real threat in the Mediterranean sea lanes. Losing the Mediterranean and, then, and thus access to the Suez Canal severely hampered its ability to ship and communicate with India, the Far East, and Australia. In addition, Marshal Patan led a collaborator government based in Vichy, a government to which much of the French overseas colonies, including French Indochina, pledged allegiance to. France still had in its control a powerful and modern navy, and now it became a quasi-foe and could quite easily menace Britain's ability to stay in contact with the colonies through the Mediterranean. So, on July 3rd, 1940, Britain decided to act. It launched Operation Catapult, a Royal Navy operation to deliver an ultimatum to France's navy based in various North African naval bases. They could, one, join the Allies, two, sail out of theater, or three, sail to a neutral country such as the U.S., or face destruction. When confronted, French naval officers promised their British counterparts that they would not let the Germans use their ships against them. After all, until recently, they were allies. But these pleas, of course, had to be weighed against the reality of Nazi Germany's victory in France. How could any French officer guarantee their ships won't be used against Britain? While at some basis an agreement was reached to disarm some of the vessels, and in some cases eventually joined the Free French, at Mirz al-Kabir in Oran, Algeria, negotiations broke down, resulting in the bombardment of the base, the sinking of a battleship, and damage to a number of the battleship's destroyers and aircraft based there. Moreover, over 1,300 French sailors lost their lives in the operation. Britain's actions here did have a number of effects. First, it did bolster the Churchill government's resolve in Parliament. He was so serious in staying in the war, he'd even fight our former allies to keep going. Secondly, it demonstrated to the U.S. that Britain would do what it took to resist, even if it meant a level of ruthlessness. And thirdly, it led to a hostile Vichy France, but not necessarily one that would use its Mediterranean navy to stop the British. 
As a postscript to the whole episode, uh, the Axis did make a move to take the French naval vessels at Toulon in November 1942. And the French Navy, true to its word to Britain years before, scuttled all the ships before they could be captured. To to this day, there's a level of bitterness about the whole affair, and neither the British nor the French really choose to remember this episode. Now, there's a whole podcast here about Britain's strategic moves in 1940 to keep it in the war, from bombarding French naval bases to invading Iceland and even meddling in an American presidential election in 1940, but that's all beyond our scope for this podcast. What the key takeaway is that for Malaya's colonial neighbors, French Indochina and the Dutch East Indies, they were now sailing in uncharted territories. The metropolises of both colonies have been conquered, and their usefulness as defense partners alongside British Malaya was now highly dubious. The Dutch East Indies was hopelessly defended by a force too small to stand up to any potential Japanese landings and could not expect any reinforcement from the Netherlands. In French Indochina, uh, composed of parts of modern-day Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, the situation was even grimmer. Like a wounded animal surrounded by jackals, the colony was under pressure from multiple sides. Even before France was defeated during the Blitzkrieg, Japan began to coerce the colony to stop any supplies headed to China and to host Japanese inspectors in-country to certify that any such supplies have been blocked. On June 20, 1940, French Indochina agreed to the terms, and the Japanese gained a foothold in the country. By September 1940, Japan established bases in northern Indochina after short hostilities. In addition, in October 1940, the Vichy colony was also invaded by independent Thailand, which felt that after the fall of France, now was the time to adjust the border to its advantage. After a surprisingly well-coordinated campaign by a well-equipped Thailand, Japan negotiated a ceasefire, thereby playing kingmaker in Southeast Asia. By doing so, Japan sought to not needlessly provoke a weak French Indochina, or Britain, or U.S. for that matter, but also settling matters in Thailand's favor. As we will see later on, Thailand will be a key factor in Japan's war plans in Malaya. The slow-motion Japanese invasion of Indochina would be completed when the Vichy authorities agreed to Japanese basing rights in southern Indochina in July 1941. Imperial Japan's presence in French Indochina allowed it to base aircraft and stage troops that could strike at British Malaya and the American Philippines, a risk that was not lost on the nascent allies. In its wake, the United States would embargo oil exports to Japan, and their shot clock to Pearl Harbor and the Pacific War began ticking. Period before relief. The whole premise of the Singapore strategy was that in the case of a crisis in the Far East, a powerful Royal Navy fleet would sail east to protect the colonies. Given the limited size of the Navy, any deployment to the Far East was going to be dependent on the general strategic situation. Even as early as 1934, as Hitler began consolidating power in Germany, the chances of a Royal Navy fleet being deployed to the Far East was in decline. What Royal Navy vessels were in the Far East before the outbreak of the war, uh, specifically at the China Station, and this, you know, think Hong Kong, were one aircraft carrier, four cruisers, a number of destroyers and submarines, not a negligible force. However, with the outbreak of war in September 1939, even this force was whittled down as units were sent to Europe. The phrase period before relief was the estimated time a garrison would have to hold out in Malaya before a fleet arrived to its rescue. At the Imperial Conference in spring 1937, London had to admit that its rearmament plan was falling behind and that given the situation deteriorating in Europe, 
the initial six-week timetable should be revised. When it was suggested that the relief period should be in all reality six months, and this is if circumstances allow, this was seen understandably as alarming to the Australians and possibly would spur Japanese plans forward. As a compromise, it was proposed that the guideline should be 70 days. In July 1939, the estimate was altered again to state that the main fleet would arrive within 90 days of hostilities. By October 1939, one month into the Second World War, this was extended to 180 days, or about six months before relief. To put the cherry on top, the Admiralty had decided that summer, in 1939, that at best two capital ships could be spared from European waters for a Far Eastern deployment in any event. For all intents and purposes, the Singapore strategy was dead even before the first shot was fired. On June 19, 1940, some two weeks after the Dunkirk evacuation was completed, London notified the Australians that for the foreseeable future, the Singapore strategy could not be implemented. There simply weren't enough ships to be spared. Admitting the failure of the strategy, Britain decided now was the time to begin improving ground and air defenses to make up for a shortfall in the naval strength. Needless to say, the Australians took the news very poorly. Strategy and Bluffing From the summer of 1940 onwards, London prioritized the defense of Britain, the Mediterranean theater, and lastly the Far East in that order. With regards to Malaya, London engaged in a level of hopeful thinking, assuming that the Japanese would not invade British Malaya as long as, long as Singapore remained a port for a fleet that might be sent from Britain. Of course, premising your entire strategy and how you hope the enemy will think and act is a supremely dangerous activity. Malaya Command still had the same mission, hold the base at all costs and keep it as a deterrent, or if push comes to shove, at best a staging area, for an eventual counterattack when the war situation in Europe allowed Britain to shift resources east. The Chiefs of Staff's Far East Appreciation, published in August 1940, spells out the thinking explicitly. Quote, until we have defeated Germany and Italy, however, or drastically reduced our naval strength, we are faced with the problem of defending our interests in the Far East without an adequate fleet. In the absence of a fleet, we cannot prevent damage to our interests in the Far East. Our object must, therefore, be to limit the extent of the damage and in the last resort to retain a footing from, from which we could eventually retrieve the position when stronger forces become available." Unquote. In the absence of a fleet, Britain now handed over primary responsibility to the RAF to defend Malaya and the Singapore base. Even at this late stage, London could not formally cancel the Singapore strategy. The Royal Navy at this stage deemed this footing, in reality, uh, in the appreciation that I discussed above, to be Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, not Singapore. But London allowed the Dominions and the Allies to assume it remained Singapore. This tidy little deception allowed Britain to continue to engage the Americans to plan for a coordinated defense of the Far East, a defense that would, as we will quickly see, hinge on Singapore. In addition, shifting the defense of Malaya to the RAF signaled to Australia that Singapore would be held and that any interruption in the strategy would be temporary. Britain in part relied on Australian ground troops to remain in the fight in North Africa and couldn't afford to have Australia pull back its men to reinforce its near frontier in Malaya. The ace card that Churchill hoped to play in the Far East was the Americans. Beginning in August and September 1940, secret talks were held with Washington outlining British grand strategy. 
given that this was an election year, President Roosevelt couldn't afford to be ahead of the electorate with regards to the American intervention in the war, even if public opinion was beginning to turn in the U.S. after the fall of France. However, the talks began in secret to begin coordinating grand strategy at this early stage. For the Americans, they clearly recognized that at some stage they would be involved in this war. For the British, they clearly recognized that they couldn't win this war without the Americans. By the end of the year, London's war planning openly built in the Americans as a factor, an astounding example of coalition warfare before there's a coalition. Like the ultimate deus ex machina, the Americans were plugged into British strategic problems as the solution. This was especially apparent with the Singapore strategy after the U.S. Pacific Fleet, normally based in California, was now forward deployed to Pearl Harbor in May 1940. Encouraged by the prospect of the U.S. Navy coming to its rescue, London in November suggested that the Americans can base nine of their 14 battleships in Singapore as a further forward deployment. The U.S. Navy now would make up for the numbers lacking in the Royal Navy. In this move, they overplayed their hands with the Americans. The U.S. Navy simply didn't agree to Singapore's importance. American war plans prioritized Germany as the primary enemy to be dealt with first, and until, until then, Japan was to be contained. Moreover, it saw a forward deployment to Hawaii as adequate enough to challenge Japan. Underpinning this was American public opinion. The American public was not interested in saving the British Empire, and before the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor would see any deployment to Singapore as a British ploy to, quote, pull British chestnuts out of the fire, unquote. After the November 1940 election, both the U.S. and Britain intensified their war planning, but the role Singapore would play was not made any clearer. While Churchill backed off from pressuring the Americans further, the Admiralty simply plugged in the U.S. Navy as the force that made the Singapore strategy viable. Desperate times for strange lines of thinking. And this is where we will leave things this episode. The situation in the Far East becomes critical, as France falls in the summer of 1940. Britain will defend Singapore as a naval base for a fleet that still didn't exist, but would be tasked to come to its rescue. In the next episode, we'll take a look at the Japanese grand strategy, British theater planning, and introduce the personalities that will take the lead in the coming battle. The intro to Shadows of the Empire is Highland Laddie, courtesy of Bagpiper Germany on YouTube. Thank you for tuning into Shadows of the Empire. Please subscribe wherever you're hearing this podcast and review us on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at shadowsof underscore the empire. Thank you.